Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. You doing okay this morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like you are. Sounds like you are. Some of y'all sound like me this morning. I um, Yesterday, I spent a little while outside running a pickaxe. Yeah. Somebody knows what a pickaxe is. They're, they're an invention of cruelty um, to, uh, to bring pain and suffering the morning after for people who are 60 years plus. Um, I hadn't operated a pickaxe in a while, and uh, I, I, I remembered why this morning when I was trying to get out of the bed. Um, it, uh, it was something. I had some roots I had to try to get rid of that were tearing up uh, some, uh, our concrete driveway. So anyway, it was a beautiful thing. But I'm, I'm recovering. I'm grateful to be upright now. And uh, glad you're here today as well. A uh, couple of things. Next Sunday, um, God willing, I'm going to have the privilege of interviewing a couple of our young people from our student ministry who... Uh, spent a week away at Fuge, um, just intensely walking with the Lord as well as serving others, some of them that week. And I look forward to uh, them being able to share with you a little bit about what they saw God doing uh, in them and around them. So I hope you'll make plans to, to be here for that. Um, also, I want to thank you for, uh, for your generous and sacrificial giving to the work of the Lord through River Bluff Church. Some of you give so faithfully and generously and sacrificially, and it allows us to carry out ministries like our student ministry and other ministries. And then I, I just personally want to, to say thank you. Um, I also want to apologize to our uh, folks who may be joining us online uh, from last week. We had a little problem. I think that service finally got up this morning, and then I just got reported that it was, we were delayed going kind of live this morning. So, um, folks, uh, sorry. I hope, hope things are running uh, along well now. And um, hope, hope that takes place. This morning, we're continuing in our series uh, about the questions that Jesus was asked. Jesus was asked when he was walking this earth, he was, he was asked some pretty incredible questions by people. And he gave even more incredible answers. And we've been kind of unpacking some of those. And this morning, we're going to deal with a question that was asked of Jesus uh, by one of his disciples, Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, if you'll open them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. I know some of you are saying we were in Matthew chapter 18 last week. Yes, we were. Um, but there are a lot of questions in Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus answered. And so I want us to step into one of those uh, today. Uh, we're going to read verses 21 through 35, but we're going to break it up. So I'm not going to read it all at once like I often do. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, I want to stop there. And we'll, we'll press on into this in, in just a moment. Be, I want you to be kind of captured by the action 
of what's taking place in this moment in the context. Matthew tells us that Peter, if you back up in chapter 18 and, and kind of look what's happening, Matthew tells us that Peter had been listening to Jesus talk and teach on relationships, human relationships, what happens when they break down. And so Peter's been listening to Jesus teach on that, and he, he asked a, a question in the context of this. Now, I don't know whether this was because Peter was presently dealing with this particular issue. We're not told. But I do believe that Peter is probably aware of kind of common information about this topic that he's going to ask this question about because it was almost taught across the board by the rabbis in Jewish life in that day. So this was kind of like common knowledge that, that Peter kind of steps into with his question. See, common knowledge of that day, the answer to Peter's question would have been three times. That you have to forgive somebody who has sinned against you three times. But strike three and you're what? You're out. But that was kind of common knowledge that day, commonly taught by the rabbis. And so Peter... Um, probably had that information in his mind when he comes to Jesus and says, hey, how many times do I need to forgive? Seven times? You notice how he throws that number in there. Now, we don't know why, but I want you to just imagine with me. If you, if you back even further up in Matthew chapter 18, you will see this dispute, this struggle that plagued the disciples about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's manifesting itself here again from Peter because of what he, he does here. Now, I, I can't promise you this was his motivation, but I just want to give you one possible uh, scenario. It's kind of like Peter comes to Jesus in this teaching that he's doing on broken relationships, and he gets this idea, hey, common thinking is you got to forgive somebody three times. I'm going to try to look really good in front of Jesus and everybody else right now. So he throws this out and he, he says something like, Jesus, how often do I have to forgive someone who sinned against me? And he doesn't let Jesus answer. He throws out there seven times. Now, if you think about what Peter has done, he, he's done quick math. He multiplied three times two, got six, and he threw in one for good measure. Okay, so he said, I'll double what, you know, the great teachers of the day teach. I'm going to double it so I look really good. And just for extra, you know, grace, I'm going to throw one more in there. Maybe Peter was hoping that Jesus would see him as being really spiritual. And he, it's kind of like taking the teacher an apple. You know, you can just kind of see Peter thinking that I'm going to come out looking really good in the eyes of Jesus right now. And, and all my peers, I'm going to come out looking really good. I don't think Peter was prepared for Jesus' answer. I don't think any of us are really prepared for his full answer. But his immediate answer was, ESV translates it 77 times. Most other English translations translate it 70 times 7. You can translate it either way. You can go either way there. Um, if it was 7 times 70, how, how many times would that be? 490, okay, y'all all get check marks by your math today, okay? You did, you did good. But here's what Jesus was trying to tell Peter. Peter, it's not about math. Not about math. It's about me. It's about you, actually, Peter, and you disciples, and you who are listening that day, and you who are listening today. 
It's about the human heart. It's about what's going on on the inside of us. And Jesus, in order to drive this home, gives a parable, a teaching that makes a point. He takes something that's kind of common in life, and he wants to drive home a point because Peter's heart has missed this. And this is a huge kingdom issue that Jesus wants to get across. And so he starts this parable by telling us that it's about the kingdom of heaven. Now remember the kingdom of heaven is where the rule and reign of God exists. It is where what God wants to happen happens. And Jesus teaches that it can happen in our day, in our lives, if we will come under the rule and reign of God. And so Jesus is going to point out what that rule and reign looks like on this topic of forgiveness. But before I do this parable, uh, before we read into it, I, I want you to do something as we're reading through it. I want you to look at the cast of main characters. And I want you to try to figure out who are the, the four main characters. Now, there, there's actually kind of a, a fifth set of characters, but they're kind of, I'm just going to tell you who they are. They're, they're all these other servants. So you can kind of toss them out. There are four main characters that I want you to look for as we're kind of making our way through this, and then we'll stop and kind of look at them for a moment. But I want us to pick up at verse 23 where Jesus begins this parable. Jesus says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He's got accounts in his kingdom he needs to, to settle. It's a day of reconciling accounts. Verse 24, When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, our minds try to do math here and think about, you know, um, kind of what monetary exchange looks like. And so, you know, if we read something about, you know, pounds in, in England or something, we try to translate, what would that be in, in, you know, U.S. dollars? Friends, there's not an equal exchange here. We, we might look at this and our minds may go to $10,000 and we think that's a lot of money. But, you know, I can probably manage a $10,000 debt over time if I'd be given enough time. 10,000 talents is not $10,000, okay? 10,000 talents, most, most historians tell us that a talent was a value that was about the amount that the average person uh, had for their annual income. Some say it's even greater than that. That's just one talent. This guy had a debt of how many? 10 thousand talents that would be ten thousand times his annual salary which would mean he would have to work how many years to pay it off at least ten thousand this was a debt and this is Jesus' point that's insurmountable it is absolutely impossible for this guy to pay this back now how a servant got in this much debt we don't know did he embezzle did you know did he Robbed from the king. We, we don't know, but it's obviously a debt he cannot pay. It's impossible for him to, to pay. But we need to be captured by how massive this is. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, again, the understatement of the parable, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. Now, the king knew that that 
was still not going to come anywhere close to 10,000 talents, but he, or, he ordered anyway. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and notice this, he'll pay what? I'll pay everything. Can't be done. It, it, it can't be done. He, he knew he couldn't do it. The king knew that he, he couldn't pay it back. Everybody in the king's court that day knew he couldn't pay it back. But he says this in an act of utter desperation. And it works. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's incredible. But, story doesn't stop yet. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. So this is a co-worker. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, again, let's do some currency exchange here. A hundred denarii was estimated to be about three months' salary. A denarii was basically considered to be, for the average working person, about a day's wage. About a day's wage. So this was about 100 you know, days worth of, of, of labor. So this was a realistic and manageable debt. With a little extra effort, you know, this guy could have gotten a, a job delivering pizza at night or something, maybe. Um, it had to be kosher pizza because these were Hebrews. But, you know, he, 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 got, he was delivering pizza or whatever. He could have paid the debt off. That's the point. This was manageable. That's what Jesus is trying to point out. This was, comparatively speaking, to 10,000 talents, this was incredibly insignificant uh, uh, amount of money. But then look at verse 29. So this fellow servant, not, not, this is not in front of the king now. This is the, 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 the one servant who had been forgiven his debt. He's got his co-worker with him. This fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, and he uses the same words. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. That was possible. He could have paid this guy back. But look what happens. He refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, instead of sharing with his co-worker the joy of his own release, the joy of his, the mercy that he had been shown, he mistreats this fellow worker. He, he demands that he pay, and, and not just pay over time, but pay immediately. This one indebted to his co-worker you know, he, he, could have, he, he could have paid back, but he uses the very same words. Now, I don't know this, but it is possible that he was present in the court moments earlier when that guy was forgiven his debt, and he thought, okay, I'm going to use the same words. Same words he used. Look at the results. And he uses these words, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But this just forgiven servant was unwilling to grant to his co-worker and friend probably what the king had just granted to him. He would not, he would not give in. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they should have been. This should distress all of us. It says, and they went and reported to their master, this is to the king, all that had taken place. Then 
his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Now, I don't know what translation you're reading out of, but most other English translations translate that word torturers. And that's probably the most accurate translation is torturers. We'll come back to that thought in a minute. Verse 34. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers or torturers until he should pay all his debt. You know, he, he was never going to get out. He was never, we've already talked about, he, he was never going to be able to pay. He would be stuck for his whole life with these torturers. And then Jesus delivers the gut punch. I mean, listen to what Jesus says in verse 35. So he's, he's, he's given this parable, and now here's the truth that he wants people to be captured by. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is one of the most fearful passages of Scripture in the New Testament. One of the most fearful things that Jesus says, it should stop all of us dead in our tracks and just say, Jesus, what is going on here? And I want us to take the time we have remaining to unpack some of this. Before we do that, did you pick up the characters? First character that we see is the king. Second character we see on stage is this, this wicked servant. And then we see his fellow servant that he wouldn't forgive. And then we see the jailers, the torturers. And I think, remember, Jesus has given a parable about the way things really work in the kingdom of heaven, about the heavenly realms. And Jesus is wanting to point out how important forgiveness is. And so understanding these characters matters. Now, the king of heaven, of course, is God. This is pointing to, to God, Father God. The fellow servant, not, not the wicked servant, but the fellow servant was considered, if you read what commentators say, some would tell you that it was uh, about other brothers and sister Christians. Some would tell you that it was about the, the other Hebrews, part of the tribe of, of Israel. Others said it's any human being. I fall into that camp of thinking that's what Jesus was talking about. Every other human being, part of the sea of humanity. I think that's who Jesus is applying this thing to. And then he, he speaks about this wicked servant. He's, the, he's one of these characters. And this, this individual, this character is one who carries around unforgiveness, who will not forgive his co-worker, his friend, his, his neighbor. Who do you think the jailer torturer is? Well, I think that represents Satan and, and all of his demonic influence in our world all the oppression that the enemy brings against the people of god and it says these they, you know they will be the ones who will eventually torture all those who are separated from god for all eternity but let's unpack this this parable go back to verse 34 i want to read it this time out of new living translation it says then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. 
That's what my heavenly Father Jesus says will do to you if you refuse to forgive. If you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Now, this is a big idea to me from this, this teaching of Jesus, and it's this. Forgiveness is a heart matter. Forgiveness is a heart matter that has impact on earth and in heaven. Has an impact on this planet and in the heavenly realm. It's a matter of the heart. Now, the Bible tells us, it's not going to come up on the screen. You can write it down. 1 Samuel chapter 16, God, God tells us, he tells through the prophet Samuel, he says, I do not look at the outward appearance of mankind or, or, or women. I look at the heart. I judge the, the heart. I see the heart. And so for God, forgiveness is first and foremost a matter of our hearts. God says, I see what's going on in your heart. But then we also have to realize that this impact of unforgiveness, it has on the earth, in the here and now. What's happening right now around us. All of our relationships are impacted by unforgiveness in our heart. And not only in the here and now, but it can, it can extend on the earth. The Bible talks about this idea of the ripple effect of sin to the third and fourth generation. And friends, unforgiveness is one of those sins that has the power to negatively impact third and fourth generations. It is, it is a bondage. It is a prison that can imprison your offspring if you walk around in the prison of unforgiveness. Unfor it has that great capacity. But there are also eternal implications. There are implications in this battle that's going on, that's raging in the heavenly realms right now. There's this fight uh, for your soul to be free and out of the captivity uh, of unforgiveness. And I want to pay more attention to this, that part today. I taught on this about a year and a half ago, a year, a couple months ago, um, and I can send you to that, you know, if you, if you say you want more teaching on this particular passage of Scripture, um, if you'll send me an email, I will give you the date and all that kind of stuff. But I want to be able to get to the end and talk a little bit more about the spiritual battle than I did last week. But I cannot not talk about the heart of God in this. And so I want us to start back kind of at the beginning uh, of this parable and look at the heart of God who is the main character in, in every parable that Jesus really gives us. Matthew 18, 27, we read these words. Then his master, filled with pity for him, he was filled with pity and he released him and he forgave the debt. So this master, this eventually that he would call the wicked servant is before him and he has pleaded with the king and the king, the Bible says, is filled with pity for him. He released him and he forgives his debts. Friends, the first action that we see this king in forgiveness is he first empathized with the debtor. If you want to avoid being twisted, if you want to avoid being locked away in a prison of unforgiveness, the first thing that you've got to do is you've got to begin to take pity to empathize with the person who has wronged you. The Bible says this king was filled with with pity. He, he looked on this person who had wronged him, and we've got to do the same thing. Now, that doesn't just mean you feel sorry for them. 
This is an extremely important word in the, in the Bible. It has to do with compassion, and it literally means that you, you, you give your heart out to this person. You have a heart connection with them. That's what compassion and, and, and pity mean here in the Scripture. Your heart literally goes out to somebody else. That's what empathy, biblical empathy is. It means you identify with them. It means you, you, you put your heart in, in their hands for a minute and you, you put what's going on in them in your own body. You try to experientially feel what, what this person feels. So you fully identify with that one who transgressed against you. You know, Jesus, God in the flesh came to earth and he fully identified. He didn't sin, but he fully identified. He was on the receiving end of people who would not forgive him. And he never sinned against anybody. But he knew what that was like. So to, to forgive, you've got to fully identify, which means you've got to do the internal, the internal work in your own heart of remembering just how much you have in common with them. And your soul is not going to want to do that. Everything in you is going to push back against that. Because our hearts naturally want to accentuate our differences. We want, we want to point those things out. But Scripture says if you want to live the kingdom way, if you really do want to live under the rule and reign of God, if you want to avoid this prison of anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, you are going to have to empathize with the other. You're going to have to practice as a spiritual discipline the habit of empathy. And that starts by remembering this. You are a sinner who deserves death and hell. You deserve to be cut off from God and tortured forever. I deserve that. Everybody on the planet, that is what we have. That's what we deserve. We're all sinners. We're all, every one of us, part of the the community of humanity, we are all sinners. We all have a past. But, but thank God, every sinner also has a future. And you can have that future in the presence of God. And he allows us to do that now as we come to Christ. But we've got to empathize with those that we want to walk in forgiveness with. And this includes those who have sinned against us. you gotta, you got to empathize to get out of unforgiveness. That was the first thing the king did here, was he had pity. His heart went out. Second thing he did was he released the debtor. Friends, this is a huge problem for us. We do not want to let go. We don't want to release this. We don't, we don't, but the Bible says that his master, verse 27, released him. He, he released him. Now, had the servant done something wrong? Yes. Did he deserve punishment? Yes. Again, we don't know what he did. But it was pretty massive. Whatever he, he had done, he did something wrong. And friends, if you forgive somebody something wrong that they have done to you, sometimes the thought will come, and it may be rightly so, the thought will come, I can't just let this go because this person does this all the time. So I can't just let this go for the sake of others, and maybe even for the sake of this, this person, I can't just, can't just let this go. I got to stop them. I got to try to wake them up. I got to, you know, insist on some kind of restitution. Friends, sometimes that is the right action. 
Sometimes that's the right reaction. Sometimes that needs to happen. But if you have not taken the full measured step of empathy, then that's not what you're really doing. Because you won't be actually moving to a place where you released him. If you try to walk towards justice without first living out of empathy for a season, you're not pursuing biblical justice. You're not doing this for their sake. You're not doing this for the sake of other people. You're actually doing it for yourself. You're trying to make them hurt. You're not releasing them. You're trying to put a stranglehold on them, actually. You're trying to make that person pay. And what you'll do is you'll reduce godly justice and righteousness to vengeance and personal satisfaction, and you'll not get anywhere. And you will stay locked in the prison of unforgiveness. You've got to release them. Third thing that the king does is the king, it says, forgave the debt. And again, this is kind of getting to the heart of what this means. This is, this is so completely different from our culture. You know, we live in this cancel culture, and which basically says if somebody ever wrongs you, what you want to do is literally drive them from all humanity. You want to cut them off from all human relationships. You want to deny that they ever did a good thing ever in their whole life. All you want to do is point to this one thing, and you want to see them wiped out. You, no grace for these folks. And the root of cancel culture is unforgiveness. It's just, it's just purely unforgiveness. You want, you want them completely locked away from, from yourself and from others. But the king, the king who had pity, the king who released, also forgave this debt. Now remember, how big was the debt? 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Some historians tell us that it would have been the annual collection amount from several provinces of the Roman Empire. And those monies, the king would have, he would have needed to accomplish kingdom issues. I mean, there were still bridges and roads to build, potholes to fill, armies and navies to pay their salaries, boats to fit, you know, all of those things that are a part of it. The king still had to see that all that happened so the king was going to have to be the one who paid. This would come out of his own personal treasury now because he absorbed this cost. He, he took the loss. He, he, he took it on. He took the hit is what this king did when he said, I forgive the debt. And friends, that's what God willingly did for you and for me. He took the hit of my sin. And he took the hit of your sin because there was a debt owed that we couldn't pay. Our sin is so great and so unholy that it cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. It had to be rectified. And so God himself came. See, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's the payment for it. The Bible tells us that Jesus came. He took on flesh, God in the flesh, to pay your debt to God, to pay my debt that we couldn't pay. It was too massive. It was unpayable. 
And that when Jesus came and he got on that cross, he took your sin and he took my sin. And the Bible tells us that it was placed in his body on that cross. And that when he died, he took that sin into the grave with him. He conquered it on the cross through his suffering and his sacrifice. Jesus absorbed that penalty. And here's what the Bible says. If you will put your trust in him, if you will trust that what he did on the cross and what he did through his burial, death, burial, and resurrection can set you free from the forgiveness that you need from God, that God would grant that, that God would forgive you in, in Christ. And what that means is I have to reject this thought that I can come up with some payment plan like, like the servants did. He said, I'll pay you. You can't pay him. You got to get to that place where you just say, I can't pay this debt, Jesus. Thank you that you paid it for me. You got to come to that realization. It's called repentance. It's called saying, I, I don't want, I, I know I can't think that way. I can't manipulate you, Jesus, Father, God, King. I just have to come to you. And the Bible says when you do that, when you call on Jesus that way, when you repent, when you say, I'm going to trust you now for my forgiveness and for life in you, you can be forgiven. You will be released from prison. Your debt will be paid. And you are free to live under the rule and reign of God now, today in this life. You can both experience forgiveness and give it away. You don't have to continue to live temporarily in prison in unforgiveness. You can know and put out forgiveness. Walk it out. And so I want us to think for a few minutes of what walking out forgiveness looks like. And the first thing you need to know about walking out forgiveness is what forgiveness is not. Because this is one of the schemes of Satan is he tries to tell you that Forgiveness is this, 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 and this. And you look at that and say, I can't do it. There's no way I could ever do that in the life of that person because they hurt me so badly. And so you got to be clear on what forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not denying. It is not living in denial that something didn't happen. It's not trying to ignore. It's not trying to sweep it under the rug. It's not ignoring some hurt that someone has perpetrated against you. It is not denial that someone harms you in a great way. Forgiveness is also not enabling. It is not continuing to enable bad behavior. It's not to uh, enable sin to continue. Uh, it, it, encouraging, if you would, enabling some illegal activity. See, forgiveness is not passive. It doesn't deny. It doesn't enable. Also, forgiveness is not forgetting. You don't have the ability to forget. You are going to remember. But here's what you don't have to do. You don't have to ruminate. You have to remember, but you don't have to ruminate. You know what ruminating is when it comes to thinking? You know what a cow is? A cow has big lips. He takes his big cow lips. He grabs some grass. He eats it. He chews it. He swallows it. It goes into one of his stomachs. You know what he does later? He burps that bad boy back up, and he chews it again, and he swallows it. And a little bit later, he burps it back up. Lunch is looking real good right now, isn't it? He, that's what ruminating is, and that's what we so often do. 
we don't just remember, we ruminate. We love to play, rewind and play. Rewind and play when somebody has wronged us. You don't have to ruminate, but you can't forget. Only God has the ability to choose to remember your sin no more. You don't have that ability. So forgiveness does not mean that you forget. Forgiveness also is not responding. It's not necessarily responding. It doesn't mean that you have to wait for an apology to come because the apology may never come. You are called to forgive anyway. You can forgive somebody who is already deceased. You need to let them out of that prison that you're holding them out so that you can walk out as well. See, friends, forgiveness is a complex issue. And we've got to understand what it's not. Another thing that forgiveness is not, it is not trusting. It's not trusting in that other person. And it, it's also not reconciling. It's not trusting and reconciling. I want to deal with these two together for a minute because Forgiveness can come, but it doesn't mean that the relationship is going to be restored to what it once was. It may never go back to that. Jesus didn't say here they had to reconcile. He said you need to forgive. Now, forgiving somebody who abused you your whole life doesn't mean that that, that relationship goes back to the way it was before. It, it, it doesn't mean that reconciliation it doesn't mean that you can go to dinner with them tomorrow night you may not be able to do that now let me say this does jesus hope that one day forgiveness can happen in such a way that those things may occur yes but that's not forgiveness that's not what jesus is talking about here and satan will try to convince you that you can only be living in forgiveness if you've reconciled and now if you're trusting friends if that if that person abused you don't you dare entrust your children to their care. Don't do it. It's not reconciling the relationship to perfection, and it's not total trust in that person once again. Friends, when I learned that, those two things about forgiveness, it, it changed me. It, it, it let me out of a prison I was in. That those, those two things are not forgiveness. So to walk out forgiveness, you've got to understand, first of all, what it is not. But then you've got to understand what it involves, what biblical forgiveness involves, because it involves a few things. The first thing it involves is empathizing. If you're going to forgive somebody, your heart has to go out to them. And we've already kind of talked about what that looks like. I'm not going to camp out here very long, but it, it, it means that you will have compassion on that person. You will recognize their frailty and their brokenness, and you will be aware of your own when you see theirs. In the recovery movement, there's a phrase, you spot it, you got it. So what this means is that you will spot something in somebody else, and it will cause you to look deeply in yourself and realize, I got the same sin problem too. I, I struggle in, in, in the same way. And you connect with their humanity. You got to empathize. Forgiveness also involves deciding. You got to decide at some point, I want out of this prison. I want out of this prison of unforgiveness. I don't want to live this way anymore. And it also involves, forgiveness involves renewing. You got to decide and you got to renew. You're going to have to renew that decision because, see, part of the decision you're making is to enter a process. Because forgiveness is going to be a process. It's going to be a journey along this forgiveness continuum. 
You know what the Bible says about God's mercy for you? In Lamentations chapter 3, it's new how often. Every morning, every morning, the way that God expresses his forgiveness to you is there is new mercy every morning. When you're going to enter the forgiveness realm, your mercy is going to have to be renewed towards that other person. You got to make a decision. God made a decision to forgive you in Christ. But his mercy towards you is renewed every day. And you'll have to renew your mercy to that other person in the same. You'll have to decide, but you'll also have to renew that mercy. Can I give you a, a, a homework assignment maybe? If you find yourself struggling with unforgiveness towards somebody, here's what I'd encourage you to do. I'd encourage you to schedule a, a meeting with God and take a couple of pens and a lot of paper and sit before the Lord and say, God, I want you to open my mind to every way this person has offended me. Holy Spirit, bring every offense that I have against this person to my mind and you just start writing them down. Just start writing them down. And then I want you to get a can, a pot, don't get your mom's best cookware, though, okay? Don't do that. Because you're going to light that thing on fire. You're going to burn that whole thing up. And as that, that is burning, here's what I want you to do when you look into those flames. You think about the flames that you deserve. You think about the flames that you should have to endure for all eternity because of your sin against God. But Jesus wiped that out. And you praise him for that as you're watching what you hold against the other person burn up. And then when the, the fire is out and there are ashes there, you take those ashes, you go get yourself a shovel, and you dig a hole, and you put those ashes in the ground, and you cover it up, and you remember that Jesus took your sin to the grave, and he buried them there. And then he got up, and he walked away, to provide forgiveness for you. And when you walk away, you walk away praising God for the resurrection power that overcomes the penalty and the power of sin and unforgiveness for you. And you thank God for that. And you realize you want to live in that kind of kingdom. You got to renew mercy every day. Next, forgiveness involves absorbing. Just like the king, you're going to have to take the hit. You're going to have to absorb this debt personally. It may have actually been a financial burden that you're just going to have to write off if you're going to forgive this person. You may you're going to have to absorb it. It may have been an emotional hit. It may have been a relational hit. But you're going to have to absorb it instead of retaliating. You're just going to have to take it on the chin, just like the king did. Then biblical forgiveness also involves trusting. Now, you're saying, Joe, you just said a moment ago, it doesn't involve trusting. It's the different source of trust, what you put in your trust, the affection of your trust. Before, it was you don't tr have to trust the other person, but now you do have to, as an act of faith, trust God, that he is always going to do justice and righteousness that he is going to one day put all things to right so that you don't have to. 
You trust in the righteousness of God. And then additionally, you got to realize that forgiveness involves witnessing. It involves bearing witness to the power of God flowing through your life. I don't have time to go into great detail today, but I would encourage you to go home later today and Google Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, 2006. Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, 2006. In that little Amish community in October of 2006, the local milkman walked into an Amish school, one-room schoolhouse, told all the little boys to leave, kept the girls there, and shot 10 of them, killing five of them. The day after they had laid their little girls to rest was going to be the funeral for the man who had done the shooting. And obviously by this time, media was everywhere. The Amish community, along with the parents of those five dead little girls, showed up at that funeral, and they surrounded this family. And they kept the media from bothering them. They protected them. They loved on them. And there's story after story after story that comes out of that town of how everyone's lives were changed. The mother of the, the, the man who did the murdering, she was wrecked by forgiveness. Her life was forever changed. Friends, forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, will bear witness to the power of God like nothing else on the planet does. You'll find freedom. Your family will find freedom. Your friends will find freedom. And they will find hope in Jesus Christ when they see forgiveness being multiplied and lived out. Lastly, forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, involves replacing. And this is where we get into the spiritual battle. So just give me just a couple of more minutes to unpack this. Because this is where the fight really happens in the unseen realm, but it's going on in our lives. The Apostle Paul does some significant writing about the spiritual conflict going on all around us in Ephesians. Most of us, our minds run to Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God. But he talks about this throughout the letter. And in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about this specifically as it relates to forgiveness. He says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give Satan an opportunity here. And then he goes on, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If you, if you give Satan an opportunity, you're going to grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Friends, this is a work. This is a fight that's going on in the heavenly realm between God and the enemy, Satan and the demonic realm. It go, Paul goes on and writes this. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, and malice is that place where unforgiveness grows. He goes on to say, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. Forgiving others just as God in Christ forgave you. For forgive. Friends, forgiveness is a spiritual fight, and it's a replacing of the stronghold of the enemy with a new anointing power of God. See, here's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness replaces the strongholds of Satan that are in your life with a new fresh anointing from God. 
That's, what, that's what's going on here. See, unforgiveness is one of the greatest schemes of Satan. Forgiveness invites the Holy Spirit in to vanquish the unholy spirits that are keeping you in prison. Quickly again, look at, look at the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness has the ability to sack Satan and disarm demonic authorities. It, just, it, it, it keeps Satan at, at bay. When we forgive, all those demonic distortions that are in our mind, the lies that we have built up against this other person, they start to fall away. See, that's, that's the wisdom that the world gives us. The world tells us, keep them locked in prison. Keep, hold on to, to unforgiveness. That's the way worldly wisdom operates. I want you to look at how James, the half-brother of Jesus, speaks about worldly wisdom. He says this in verse 15, James 3. This wisdom is not that which comes from, uh, down from above, but is earthly, is natural, and demonic. See, natural, fleshly wisdom is demonic in nature. Compare that to what James says about wisdom from above in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It is full of what? Mercy, that renewable source that overcomes unforgiveness, full of mercy and good deeds. See, this wisdom from which forgiveness operates, this, this wisdom from above is supernatural. It's life-changing, it's world-changing. You get over to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we see the account of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen is about to be stoned to death, and the people who are going to do the stoning, what they do is they bring their coats and they lay them at the feet of a guy named Saul, who eventually gets his name changed to Paul, who's responsible for writing about two-thirds of the New Testament, the words that we just read about forgiveness. Because he saw... Stephen, while he's being stoned to death, look up to heaven and say, God, do not hold this against them. He asked God to forgive them that day. And I think Paul was wrecked by it. And he, he didn't get over what kingdom forgiveness looks like. And Paul grew to know something about kingdom forgiveness, and it's this, that our confidence... Your confidence, my confidence in God's forgiveness will only be proportionate to the forgiveness I apportion to others. It will only be, the, 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 the way that you experience the forgiveness of God in this life is only going to be experienced based on how you apportion it to others. You will only comprehend the fullness of God's forgiveness for you in proportion to the way you measure it out to others. That's why Jesus said, so my heavenly father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you are not forgiving from your heart, you are not going to experience the full forgiveness of God for you. You're going to, you're going to battle in your mind constantly. I don't know if God's forgiven me. I don't know if God's forgiven me. I don't know if God's forgiven me. And Jesus wants you free from that. That's why when Jesus taught on this in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, he said, judge not, you'll not be judged. He said, condemn not, you'll not be condemned. And if you forgive, you will be forgiven. You will experience the forgiveness of my Father. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, he says, in prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving it to others. You've got to forgive to feel experientially the forgiveness of God. Now, we're not talking about whether you're saved or not. We're talking about living in the forgiveness of God, living, get out. You will feel like you're cut off from it in this life. And that leads to my last point about forgiveness in this life. 
and in the life to come. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, always ends in win-win. It is always a win-win proposition. The person that you forgive, that you release, wins. You win. Your life is forever changed. You, are, you unlock the door to that prison, and you will begin to experience the compounding forgiveness of God. Look at what John writes, the Apostle John writes about this. He says, I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. He wants you to know that. God wants us to know that. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us in the book of Romans that forgiveness can be our greatest joy, the greatest joy of a Christian to live in your forgiveness, to experience the fullness of your forgiveness. God, we, we desire that. And you're calling us this day, Holy Spirit, to step out of prison. And maybe you're here, and for the very first time, you've heard that you owe this massive debt to God that you can't pay. Maybe you've tried to pay it. Maybe you tried your, all the days of your life to think, I'll be good enough, and God will let me into heaven. It won't happen. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. And the only response any of us have is, Jesus, thank you. I received your gift of forgiving me of that penalty that I could not pay. And all you got to do is cry out to the Lord and just call on the name of Jesus and say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I choose this day to quit trying to manipulate you into thinking I'll be good enough. I want to walk in your ways, Jesus. I repent. And the Bible says you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven of everything. And God will remember your sin no more because he's God. But most of us here today, we've made that decision. And our salvation is secure in Christ. But we have locked ourselves in a prison of unforgiveness somewhere. And God is wanting you to be set free so that you can experience the full measure of forgiveness that he bought for you at Calvary. He has so much more for you. And he just wants you to, this day, to, to press in and receive that and come to understand that your hope, all of your hope is in him, that you can experience the full measure of his hope through the forgiveness he brings. And it'll bring you great joy. And I want us to close our time together by, by celebrating that great joy and that hope we have in him. I know we've run a little long, but I think we ought to celebrate the forgiveness that Christ has given us and the hope we have in him. So Father, we come. We come to worship. We come to celebrate. We come to thank you as we close this service out today in worship of you. You're our hope, Jesus, and we thank you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.